Hi there listener and welcome to episode 5 of Sound Economy. On this episode I sit down with Professor Bo Becker. We discuss topics such as inflation and systemic risk in the EU area. Hi Bo and a warm welcome to our official podcast Sound Economy. How are you doing today? Great, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. No worries. Um, so basically, when I googled you, it says that you're a Swedish economist. But to me, you're also some of a student's professor. As a matter of fact, you're the director of the Swedish House of Finance and you're the head of the Department of Finance here at the Stockholm School of Economics. But I'm curious, where did you get your start in life? Yeah, I grew up around the corner from here, actually. Okay. I was uh, I was uh, in school from first grade to the last grade of high school within you know 800 meters of Sveavägen. Nice. <laughs> so I'm really from here, uh, but my parents are from further away, um, and uh, I studied here. I uh, have a civil economic degree. Okay. The thing that existed before the Bologna system. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess from the mid '90s, sometime maybe '94, '95, ni- maybe is my exam, my uh, diploma year. Mm-hmm. And um, I did my PhD in Chicago at the University of Chicago, the Booth School of Business, mm-hmm. as it's called now, uh, with the dissertation on uh, corporate credit markets. And and how was that experience, Chicago? Oh, I loved it. It was. I mean, there's a lot of work when you're a graduate student. It's really uh, challenging to enter into a new field, absorb mm. all the stuff that's happened in that field, understand uh, what the goals are of research and the tools, getting all the machinery, uh, you know, statistics, um, data management, uh, hypothesis development, or you know how you do proofs and so on if you're doing theory. Mm. So very challenging, but I loved it. I had great professors, and uh, I grew a lot as a person, and uh, I mm. loved the whole experience. Very, very interesting. So, Bo, you have a lot of recognition in scientific journals, such as the Journal of Finance, the Journal of Monetary Economics, the Journal of Financial Economics, and the Review of Financial Studies. You have also been awarded several prizes and grants. Are these awards and recognitions a result of you being somewhat competitive or more so a result of you following your curiosity? I, I guess what I'm asking is what, what makes you tick? Mm. Yeah, I think that's an interesting question. What, what produces good research? Um, to connect with your previous question, one of the observations I made uh, when I was taking graduate courses in Chicago, was how different the professors were and how different their outlook on the world was. And what made them tick was clearly individual. So there's no one recipe. Um, when we admit people to PhD programs, I think there's a lot of information about their intellectual capacity. You know, things like IQ. Not only IQ, but that kind of thing that's measured well, tested well throughout your academic history, you know. What you don't know when someone starts grad school is if they like the lonely, long, persistent work with really delayed gratification, you know. You have an idea. When is it a published paper? That's going to be seven, eight years later. And then, you know, it's a great success if a thousand people ever read it. So Mm -hmm. you have to... You have to like that, and that's something you have to find out for yourself. Um, of course, it can be a, a part of the motivation as a as an academic can be, you know, competition. You want to be successful. Mm. You're comparing yourself to others. But I think for most people, it is a, the key component is that you want to know how the world works. You're trying to find something out, and I think that's not specific to finance or economics mm. or any particular field that's the the urge to find out is i think the key universal component in almost any successful research career 
So that's what makes you tick. Yeah, and not just me. I think everybody basically who has the patience and interest to stay with it mm. for long enough to be successful in academia really cares about the answers. Mm. You can care about success. You can care about impact. That's mm. all fine, but you got to care about the answer. Mm. And I think that's, so that's true for me. I really want to know how the financial system works. Mm. These uh, questions that I study, I find them fascinating. Mm. And I really love the pleasure of, you know, getting to an answer or getting closer to an answer. For sure. Nice. It, very interesting. And speaking about patience, because from what I've learned throughout this interview series is that patience is something... It's a bit of a virtue in the academic world. Sometimes when you're dealing with data sets or whatever it might be, um, qualitative data, it, things take time. What's, what's your advice on, on patience? Because I'm not the most patient guy as an example. Uh, is that something you believe you can learn or something that you have innate in you? Oh. This is not my research expertise. That's <laughs> <laughs> a caveat. Um, like I said, we, we often find out, graduate students find out when they're doing mm. their PhD, they found, find out if they like it or not, if they have mm. it or not, if that works for them. Patience is a big part of it. It's not all of it. It's also this, you know, patience is uh, just sticking with something for a long time. That's part of it. Also, the nature of the gratification, which is, you know, a kind of esoteric or abstract thing like mm. getting into a good journal or having many people you know reference your paper and so on mm. so you find out you don't know i don't think there's mm. anything if you've if you've gone through school and then you did a bachelor or maybe a master's degree you know maybe you've worked a year at that point in your life you know you often don't know mm. if you got it and it's not even clear that suppose you've been you know you've done some really kind of mind-numbing sport like swimming. You've mm. been a competitive swimmer, which mm. means you've been doing lap after lap after mm. lap, day in and day out, mm. monotonously. Obviously, you have great patience in some mm. sense. Would that translate, mm. you know, to when you're doing work in mm. your, on your dissertation in finance? I don't know. Mm. Maybe, maybe not. So I think very likely you don't know. Mm. We know how talented people are to some, you know, with some precision when we mm. let them in. We don't know how persistent they are, how happy they will mm. be to work on their own. They don't know. They find out too. We all find out. So you have to try it. Interesting. So let's zoom out a little bit. Um, when, when I spoke with your colleague, Paolo Sudini in episode three, Household Finance in an Uncertain World, we got an understanding of idiosyncratic versus sy systema systemic risk mm -hmm. in the context of the household. You are a member of the Advisory Scientific Committee in the European Systemic Risk Board. Could you explain what the ESRB is to us yeah. listeners and the kind of sy systemic risks the board deals with? Yeah, yeah, okay. And um, for sure, that, that definitely requires an explanation. So what problem you talked about is um, idiosyncratic and systematic risks. So risks that you can diversify away and not. So if I hold one stock, it moves up and down. If I hold two, two stocks, sometimes one of them goes up, the other goes down, and then nothing happened to my portfolio, and so I, I got rid of the risk by diversification. At the end of it, if you have the whole stock market, or you know, should be something a little wider even than that, the wealth portfolio of the economy, then you've gotten rid of as much idiosyncratic risk as you can, and then all you have left is systematic, is just systematic risk okay so systemic is not exactly the same as systematic uh, systemic in this context has to do with financial stability and risks to the financial system mm. and those aren't completely unrelated but to, to go into how they're connected is a little complicated and so for now I think we can we can sort of leave um, leave uh, Paolo and the idiosyncratic and systematic risk aside mm. and talk about the financial system so the ESRB is part of the euro system, and mm. the key institution in that system, of course, is the ECB, the European Central Bank, which sets mm. interest rates, or if you like, monetary policy in the euro area, which encompasses most of the European Union economy, with a few exceptions, such as Sweden, 
Denmark, and so on. Mm. We have our own central bank, Riksbanken, that sets monetary policy for Sweden. The euro is only a little more than 20 years old, and so the ECB is a young institution. The Riksbanken, by contrast, is many centuries old. Yeah. Um, and so the institution has evolved a little bit. And one thing that happened is with the global financial crisis in 2008, 2009, it became clear that for the economy to work and be on a stable path, which is the mandate, the goal of the central bank, it is important that the financial system doesn't collapse. Mm. And it was close to collapsing or parts of it did collapse in 2008, 2009. And this is what is meant by systemic risk and as a response to that, the European Systemic Risk Board and a few other new institutions were formed in the EU. The SRB is supposed to basically help the ECB monitor systemic risk. So watch mm. out for stress and challenges in the financial system mm. and to some extent also avoid those, uh, minimize the consequences of those risks should something bad uh, be realized. Um, you know, inevitably, even if you're well-informed and you do your best, there will be a financial crisis now and then of some mm. kind, and how do you deal with that? That's the job of the European Systemic Risk Board. Mm. As part of that institution, it's a bunch of uh, bureaucrats in the positive sense of the world. Mm. word. So, you know, professionals in Frankfurt, mm. but they also have this advisory committee, which is composed basically of academics. And mm. so I'm one of them, uh, actually, there's uh, my colleague Lars Svensson from the economics department is also on the board. Mm. So there's only two schools uh, or two universities uh, okay. that have two faculty members on the board. It's mm -hmm. us and the London School of Economics. Mm -hmm. um, okay, and so we meet once in a while and give what you might call the scientific perspective mm. on measuring systemic risk and measuring stress in the financial system and mm. taking precautions against it. Uh, they do a lot of data work, analysis. They have all kinds of measures. Uh, and, uh, you know, we give feedback on that. We yeah. give an outside perspective on that. Mm. And we help them learn from academic research, I think. Nice, nice. So I'm, I'm curious then, wh what are the concerns right now for financial markets in, in Europe? Yeah, uh, number one is inflation, I okay. think. That's a global issue. Yeah. Um, and in part, we, we can talk about why inflation is going up. I think that's an interesting question if you if you think we have time for it. Yeah, but definitely. Im okay, good. So let's circle back to that. But uh, yeah, so inflation, you know, in part is because of COVID. And COVID itself created some stress. Yeah. So there's COVID and then there's inflation, which in part is due to COVID or the how the economy adjusted to the epidemic. Um, so inflation changes a lot of things. I don't know if maybe some of the listeners followed something earlier this fall where the uh, English, uh, sorry, British pension funds yeah. got in a little bit of trouble uh, with the long uh, end of the bond market. And in a way that was precipitated by inflation. And okay. um, I think we've just started to see the consequences across Europe of what happens when interest rates go up because inflation is high. So I think that's the number one threat. And I'm sure, mm. uh, you know, the ECB, the Xbanken, and all the other central banks are thinking about this all the time, mm. or they should be. Um, there are other stresses, too, and risks. So in in Europe, there's a war going on. Mm. Even if you strip out the consequences on inflation, you still have a big impact on energy markets. Mm. This is probably not going to impact financial stability but mm. it, it could help tip the economy into a recession, so that's mm -hmm. also a risk. Um, and I think you have long-term stresses like the divergence or the, the lack of convergence in productivity across the euro area is a challenge for the European Central Bank. Okay. The fact that southern European countries especially are sort of lagging mm. in terms of economic performance compared to the north and that this doesn't seem to go away over time or it, ha it hasn't converged for a long time now. Mm. This creates constant or you know persistent chronic stress in the system. Mm. That's one challenge. And Brexit was another issue. And I think the risks associated with Brexit have mostly passed, but yeah. we may not be completely at home yet. 
because I think in the long in the long run, there's still some financial activities taking place in London that might move to Frankfurt or Paris, mm. and that movement is associated with some risks. So those are some of the things you might worry about. So just to put it into to context, inflation is when I work equally hard this year as I did last year, but this year I can buy less. I have less purchasing power because things move up in prices. Things become more expensive, right? Y- yes and no. So y- the price part is exactly on the money. Mm. Uh, but one price is the price of your labor. Yeah. So you can have wages going up 10%, mm. the price of all the goods you buy going up 10%, mm. so you're exactly as well off, Yeah. and that's also inflation. Mm. So inflation can be any rise in the price level. It doesn't necessarily have to be associated with losses or real income. Mm. I think we're about to rediscover in Sweden, mm. uh, and perhaps across the European Union, something that people learned in the 80s, which is that when you think about your salary, Mm. someone says you're getting a 2% raise, you have to think what that means in real terms. Mm. And people haven't thought so much about it for a long time. If inflation is two, then 2% raise means 0% real income change. Mm. Okay, but it's easy to understand it. As in your example, if your raise is 2% and Mm. prices are 10% up, your real income is 8% lower. Mm. And so when you negotiate for wages, you have to take this into account. And so far this hasn't happened in the labor market in Sweden. I think that that's potentially a real big issue when labor unions, which do a lot mm. of the wage negotiations in Sweden, start saying, wait a minute, why are our members mm. experiencing real income declines? So yeah. that's, but that's inflation. And inflation is harmful, not because it mechanically reduces incomes, because if you have inflation across the board, it just raises prices. But uh, the experience is that inflation has all kinds of pernicious effects on how the financial and economic system works. Mm. So just to give an example, okay, you have a restaurant, you have menus on paper. Mm. The higher inflation is, the more often you have to reprint them because you're changing the prices. Mm. And even just the process of changing your prices, thinking about how to change prices, devoting resources to monitoring input prices if your company to think about, to go to the food store, you have to think about, wait, what's happening with prices? If I want to save money, what should I buy? Mm. Um, you know, If I want to spend more money, where's a good place to put it? You need to know relative prices for all these decisions, whether you're a company or an individual. Mm. And if all the prices are changing all the time, this gets really hard. So it's like throwing gravel into the machinery of the economy. And mm. so a 10% inflation is really harmful. Mm. And we last had a lot of inflation in the, let's call it the OECD, the developed world, Mm. but also in many emerging markets. We last had that in the 70s and 80s and early 90s. That was a really bad experience. And at that point, there was a complete consensus that the number one job of any central bank is to keep inflation low. Mm. Right now, the mandate may say 2% or 2.5%, but it shouldn't be 10. That's, Mm. you know, 2%, I don't think is an important number. Mm. If it's 2.5, I think that's fine but 10 is not good Mm. and it hurts the economy and the longer we have high inflation like that the more harm it causes and so that's why we're concerned so so what i'm thinking is uh, in i believe it was in the 80s when paul volcker broke the back of inflation Mm. through raising it uh, i think it was through throughout three years uh interest rates yeah exactly yes yes he did yes to, to get them back down and it seems to me that we might be in a similar position now where interest rates have to go up because i'm a believer that we need to have interest rates at a healthy level because you otherwise it will lead to inflation but it seems like the difference now is that we we've had a long period of various economic shocks such as covid as you mentioned but also quantitative easing which um, to the listeners is a way to stimulate the economy Um, So what are your thoughts there? Because the other thing that I'm thinking too is that at least here, um, me as a third year student, we're taught that uh, the the Federal Reserve or or the Riks Bank, what happens in this process is that toxic assets get cleaned out from the system, from the financial system sort of. 
um, am I right or am I wrong here? And that was <laughs> that was a lot. So okay, let's see if I can I can give some kind of response to all of that. Uh, I, I mean, yes, uh, for sure, central bank policies are behind it. And you mentioned quantitative easing. There's also been very low policy rates for a long time. Mm. That's been meant to stimulate the economy. And so the central bank it has a responsibility basically everywhere, one way or another, for keeping the economy on track, also keeping inflation from getting too low. And in Japan, for example, uh, that's been a huge challenge for decades now to get inflation up. Even the ECB has struggled with that. Mm. Inflation has been too low. The central banks also care about other things, mm. um, like, oh, let's keep financial markets stable, or let's make sure uh, you know, we support the transition to a green economy. Mm. These things aren't literally in their mandates. Mm. And so I think there's a little bit of a reevaluation going on too, where people say, let's think about how these other things that we're doing mm. relate to the long-term goal of stability. Um, so th that said, okay, let's circle back to where you started, which is how do you get inflation down? And that's also an occasion to circle even further back and to revisit the causes of inflation right now. Mm. Okay, so let's run through those real quick. So energy prices have been high now for a while because the global economy is strong. Mm. The war in Ukraine has also reduced supply of energy, especially to Europe, especially from Russia. That's driven prices up. Energy prices move a lot, and that's because it's hard to adjust um, in the short run to adjust how much energy we, we use. Mm. So prices have to go up a lot to reduce quantities consumed. Mm. In the long run the elasticity is higher, meaning we can adjust how much energy we, energy we use much more in the long run. So mm. on, at the 10-year horizon, if gas prices are high, I will buy a small car. Or if electricity prices are high, I buy a smaller car. Right now, i got to get to work, so mm. I'm going to use whatever gas it takes or electricity it takes to get to work. But at the longer horizon, I can change my car. So long run, even the kind of supply change implied by the war it's not going to hurt the economy very much, but in the short run, a lot, because we can't adjust. So that's number one. Uh, we also have COVID. So what COVID did is during the epidemic, a lot of consumption shifted away mm. from services consumed in contact with other people toward goods that you could consume in your home. Mm. So gardening equipment mm. boomed, right? Mm. Restaurant services crashed. Mm. So you have this huge shift across the economy. Obviously, that's going to drive up the price of those things that are scarce, mm. such as gardening equipment or bikes, whatever. Mm. Now, the epidemic um, isn't completely gone medically, but economically, it's mostly gone, mm. meaning people reverted. Mm. Okay, were those habits going to stick? Was working from home going to stick? Mm. Uh, you know, was the reluctance to go to restaurants going to stick? We don't, we didn't know, but we now know that. Some yes, some no. And so there's been basically a massive switch back uh, from goods to mm. services. These mm. giant dislocations mm. create inflation. They just, you gotta have, you have like a big wave of demand in one sector and then in another sector, it mm. drives up prices. So COVID, um, energy, and then the tight labor market. So one thing that drives up inflation is that wages are going up. Why, why are wages going up? Because mm. the labor market is tight. Unemployment in Sweden, you know, is relatively low. It's, I think the number I saw yesterday was 6.6. .6. Um, that's, it's a good part of the year. So it, maybe if this had been the average month, it would have been a little bit above seven. It doesn't sound great that 7% of people are unemployed, but given the mix of uh, skills on offer in the Swedish labor market and the demands here for labor services, it's actually low. So it's mm. probably pushing inflation up. And the U.S. has the tightest labor market in a long, long time. This pushes up inflation, too. So mm. all these forces pushing up inflation. To stop inflation, what you talked about, what Volcker did in the 80s, you have to shut these forces down. Mm. And basically, you need a recession. It might mm. be a mild recession. It might be enough to just slow the economy down. But when inflation is really high and persistent, you probably need an actual recession, meaning mm. people lose their jobs, Mm. economic growth will be negative. Mm. It will not be fun, mm. but it's better than waiting because you're just postponing the pain and it's going to be worse later. So the, the Volcker view, I guess, is mm. that you should just kill inflation right away. Mm. The longer you let it ride, the worse it is. Mm. And there's some inevitable pain coming our way. Mm. 
And the way central banks create that pain is by raising interest rates mm. until you get a recession or a sufficient reduction of demand in the economy mm. that prices stop rising. Mm. That can be painful. The risk is that you squeeze the economy too much, you put the lid on too much, and so mm. you get a real serious recession. Mm. That's, I think, a nightmare scenario for a central banker is that you mm. accidentally create really serious unemployment, for example. Mm. Too much, right? And the risk of that is higher when you're having to raise rates very quickly. So I think one thing that we regret in hindsight mm. is both in the US, but especially in Europe, mm is that the central banks didn't start raising rates earlier mm. because they're raising them really fast right now. Mm. And that makes it much more likely that we're gonna see some kind of mistake where we go mm. too far or we don't go far enough. And as compared to the 80s, we now live in a much more digitalized world mm. where information travels a lot faster. Do you think the reaction in, in raising rates and so forth is, uh, outcome of a more digitalized world? That's a really interesting question. Mm. Where, where is inflation? Where, what are the long-term drivers? And maybe the digital economy has reduced inflation. Mm. There's also the whole entry of China into the world economy, which has been a huge, gigantic supply shock, if you like, for manufactured goods. Mm. And so the relative price of manufactured goods has really gone through the floor in the last 30, 40 years. Mm. Part of that is technology. Part of that is uh, China entering the world economy. That The China shock, I think, is done. And so that mm. could be one reason why inflation was really low and it's not gonna automatically be so easily be kept low in the, in the next 20 years. Um, Although the development of the Chinese economy, I think, has this some uncertainty, although, of course, it's going to slow down. Um, you have other countries in Asia and, to some extent, in Africa down the line that could also produce a lot of manufactured goods, so it could mm -hmm. continue. Digitalization may also have sort of increased supply, increased com competition, increased price transparency, and created you know, a, a, a breaking force on inflation. Most of all, I think, digitalization has made it really hard to know what inflation is. Yeah. So when we think, when we talk about inflation, there's a lot of goods in the economy. They all have a price change. Mm. Okay. And you can think about problems with measuring those price changes. Mm. You know, a liter of milk, well, there's many mm. kinds of milk. Your store has one price. My store has another mm. price. One region has one price. Another region has a different price they may not move by the same amount. Mm. Also, when we're putting together the inflation number, we have to weigh all of these together. So we have mm. to say, what's the mix of this in the average portfolio of the economy mm. and the different ways of weighing? A lot of digital products, it's really hard to count, okay? Mm. Do so, you mean like Netflix subscriptions, right. HBO subscriptions, right. and so, so forth? So it's the quantity subscriptions, mm. yes, maybe. But suppose a Netflix subscription doesn't change in price from this year to next. Mm but the amount of shows you can see has changed. Mm. Usually in inflation, you have to account for that, mm. okay? So we, when we say the price of TVs has dropped by 98% since 1980, mm. we're not saying it's the same unit mm. that's selling at 2% of the original price. We're trying to adjust for quantity, uh, for mm. quality and features all the way along, mm. okay? And so you have to quality adjust. Mm. The TV that you have at home now could not be bought for any amount of money in 1980, mm. right? Yeah. Also, if we actually wanted to build the TV from 1980 now, it wouldn't be that much cheaper, mm. right? So you have to adjust for quality and, and features. And yeah. so with these digital products that bundle a lot of services, it's mm. really hard to adjust for quality. Yeah. So that's, that means we don't really know what inflation is. It's harder mm. to know nowadays. A lot of digital products just don't lend themselves to the conventional measurement of inflation. Okay. And so we say 1%, but maybe it's zero, maybe it's two. Mm. The uncertainty is much wider than it used to be. All right. Um, naturally, this war in Ukraine, at least to me, is a humanitarian crisis of the highest degree. It is very sad for the people of Ukraine defending their, their homeland, but there is also a lot of pain in the general Russian population, there, there's a lot of Russian people living outside of Russia and so forth. 
Um, what what are the effects seen in financial markets, and perhaps more specifically, has that event impacted the European systemic risk? What what would you? Is there any way to tell, or is it too early? Or uh, let me first say, yeah, that of course the the war in Ukraine is horrible. And the suffering and pain of the Ukrainian people is heartbreaking. And let's hope it ends soon in a good way for Ukraine. There's also, as you point out, suffering everywhere or in many places. So, yeah, mm. I think there's been 700,000 new refugees from Russia since the draft was instituted. Um, not just in Russia, but also in Europe. A lot of people are, are paying more for their energy bills. And um, for some people, this is really painful or it will be really painful in the winter when it's cold. Also, uh, a lot of commodity prices have gone up, so food is more expensive, and a lot of uh, countries in the Middle East, for example, rely on imports from Ukraine, and there, you know, people might be hungry. Mm. So there's a lot of suffering, uh, of course. What about economic consequences? So, number one, I think the Russian economy is really suffering in the short run and the long run. Mm. So first of all, remember all the companies that disengaged, that mm. left Russia. Mm. All their expertise, all their productivity, that is gone. Those companies are not coming back the first day you sign a peace treaty with Ukraine. Yeah. So the long-term kind of productivity outlook for the non-petro economy in Russia is really poor. Mm. Russia is very isolated now. Mm. That said, the Russian economy for a long time has been really dependent on gas and oil products. Mm. The export of that those petroleum commodities is really the backbone of the uh, the Russian economy. Mm. Like Saudi Arabia, okay? Mm. These kinds of economies, you know, with the lack of demo democratic institutions and, you know, a lot of the wealth going to a few people on the top um, and relying on basically export revenue from oil or, or similar commodities, there's a term for them in development economics called, they're subject to the resource curse, mm. which is that these resources could be diamonds, could be oil. It's so easy to steal that it rewards stealing or the capability of st uh. stealing. And therefore, you know, they are very dangerous for democracy. Mm. And so you need to have a really well-entrenched, well-established rule of law, media, democratic institutions in order to, to survive that kind of wealth mm. shock so in norway the oil is good mm. the netherlands the u.s it's good more or less mm. you know yeah uh, i mean it has climate consequences and so on but economically it's good it gets mm. shared gets used productively pretty much mm. but in in weaker institutional environments think about saudi arabia russia uh, nigeria uh, venezuela mm. you know it's really horrible for long-term quality of life for the population to find this wealth because now you're a target of robbery basically by mm. the people in charge and so that's been the case in russia for a long time and i to me that's russia's fundamental problem mm. the uh, kind of megalomania from the soviet union you know mm. those the the self-perception of the russian people i don't think th those aren't fundamental causes the problem here is that there's just a ton of oil and that's unfortunately going to be the case even more after the war that the other productive parts of the Russian economy are gonna be even weaker. And the oil is gonna be even more important. So that means even more of the wealth, such as it is, is gonna be stuff that you can steal and it's gonna reward kleptocratic, you know, militarily oriented, um, you know, structures of control and political power. That's really uh, sad. It's, it seems to me, because I'm a big believer in, in human ingenuity and I'm pretty proud over Sweden and our humanitarian. We, I think over over quite some time, Sweden has been seen as a sort of humanitarian superpower around the world, uh, focused a lot on, on, on human development. And that's something that has struck me, that when you do have a lot of natural resources and so forth, and you, you touched on that topic with um, essentially it can become easy to steal them and so forth because we humans sometimes tend to fall back on what's easy and be a bit lazy and so forth rather than f focusing on 
human development and that's sort of my my line of thinking here that in order to develop the general population you need solid institution democracy and so forth for the well-being of the of the nation um do, do you think that that's that that's something that perhaps when like i don't know missed somehow because what essentially what i'm trying to say is i you know s some people are as you mentioned fleeing russia and so forth and and people want to live in the west and have a western way of life and so forth the reason we have uh, prosperity in the west or have had it historically is because of human development and 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 human ingenuity of individuals and so forth. What are your thoughts there? Um, many thoughts. I mean, of course, you're absolutely right. In the long run, you know, human ideas drive growth and well, well-being and living standards, mm. for sure. Now, we need some commodities. If we don't have yeah. tap, tap water isn't super valuable. Mm. What do you pay for tap water? I don't know what I pay. I mm. guess my apartment building pays something. Mm. But if we don't have it, then nothing else matters mm. within 24 hours, right? Mm. But if you think, so commodities can matter in a way because mm. you take them for granted because they're mm. a small part of the economy and they are important in some way. Uh, but the long-term development of the economy is never about resources it's mm. always about ideas and deploying limited resources more efficiently mm. for sure and so that's you know why it can be a mixed blessing that said you know you, we can't sneeze at the the money that oil has made for norway mm. you know that's a blessing for them e financially mm. economically mm. for sure and uh, and uh, good for them mm. you know it's just that in poorer countries or in less institutionally developed settings this is really a m very mixed blessing even a curse often for mm. the the average person in the street mm. and so you know resource natural resources not always great mm. sweden has a lot of natural resources by the way so th mm. there's many great ideas and great companies here for sure um, but uh, paper and pulp is a huge export mm. you know along alongside music mm. in sweden right um, so we need resources. It's just in poor countries, they can be a real problem as well. Yeah, I, I've actually been to the copper mine in Falun. Have, yeah. have you ever been there? No. Well, I can tell you it's very scary to yeah. be down deep in a mine when they shut off the lights. It's, uh, it's an experience. <laughs> okay. Um, uh, Bo, when you look at uh, and work with data, what, what sort of data are, are we talking about? Is it reporting from, from banks, pension funds, mutual funds, and so on? Is it government agencies when you, you know, work with data and, and do things? Um, finance as a discipline really is a, uh, one of the original uh, big data disciplines. Mm. Maybe not like some parts of physics, but, you know, we had a lot of data for a long time because... Uh, one big part of what we study is financial markets, and so you have all these transactions, all these prices, all the time, every day. And uh, that's been the foundation, I think, of finance as a discipline, the developing, developing big databases, starting with CRISP in the 1960s in Chicago, which collected securities prices on a daily basis. Mm. And that was key. One of the most famous uh, theories in finance is that of efficient markets, which says all available publicly available information will be incorporated into prices meaning prices will reflect everything that everybody knows that, that's publicly known um, one of the key implications of that is that i can't use the movement in the stock price today to predict the same stocks movement uh, price movement tomorrow so if a stock went up today, that's not a signal that it's going to go up tomorrow. It's not a signal that it's going to go down. You know, mm. all the information is already there. Mm. Okay, to test that, you need daily stock prices. That's really mm. the obvious way to test it. And so without CRISP, the, the theory is very esoteric. Once you have CRISP, you can easily test it. Mm. That's true, by the way. It's not easy to predict stock prices. So in, in that kind of basic sense, stock prices are efficient. Um, but nowadays, of course, there's much more data and the digital revolution and IT computing power has really mm. changed the discipline to being much more uh, 
quantitative uh, and empirical. It used to be more theoretical and qualitative, mm-hmm. like many other parts of economics, if you like. And so I have worked, for example, with a lot of accounting data from publicly mm-hmm. listed companies, uh, deal data on deal structures, data on loan contracts, so mm-hmm. what's the interest rate, what's the amount, what are all the other terms, data on credit ratings, so what is the rating assigned by rating agencies to all the companies and their securities, um, and also, of course, financial market prices, uh, mm-hmm. so because I use I look at corporate credit markets. I might use the prices of bonds, mm-hmm. the prices of loans, and the prices of CDS contracts that are based on the prices of uh, credit. Mm-hmm those sorts of uh, data sets I use. Interesting, interesting. So financial markets are, are generally forward-looking. Mm. What are the climate risks that we face in today's world from your perspective, and how is the financial sector important in facilitating this problem, would you say? Uh, I think the, you can imagine three kinds of climate risk. If you're a bank or you're a, you have a stock portfolio, maybe you're a pension fund, the first is what people sometimes call physical risk, okay? So the climate gets warmer. There are no, n- more floods, for example, mm. and so houses will be destroyed, and you made a loan against that house, and now you're not going to recover your loan. Mm. Those physical risks are very low, mm. okay? In the financial system, I think you can, you can almost ignore them. Okay. The reason is uh, climate change is slow, and predictable okay okay we know very well temperatures are going to go up in the next 20 years Mm. we're a little unsure about exactly where there's going to be more hurricanes but there Mm. isn't a huge amount of uncertainty Mm. and so if you're an insurance company and you're writing uh, property insurance in florida Mm. you can just price the insurance you know Mm. fairly so that it reflects what we know about the Mm. risks going forward so you're not going to be killed by a hurricane you know, any more ne- in 10 years than you were 20 years ago. Okay. It's just that the price of each insurance policy is higher, and, you know, that can have implications for people's and companies' behavior, mm. but the insurance company is fine. Mm. If you think about the loan portfolios, think about corporate loan portfolios of European banks, mm. they have virtually nothing that's longer than 20 years out. Mm. And in 20 years, nothing horrible is going to happen uh, to most sectors in Europe. Mm. Mm. It could be that, you know, farming in Sicily is going to suffer already in the next 20 years, but most of the economic impact that we think physically from climate change is further out, and that's just beyond any other loans right now in the books of banks. Mm. So physical risks are low. Mm. The second category of risks that you can imagine um, are to do with regulation, if you like. Mm. So you might say, okay, well, sooner or later, mm. there's going to be a global price on carbon emissions. When that happens, you know, a bunch of coal plants are going to become unprofitable, and they're not going to, you know, be able to repay their loans. Mm. Um, I think that's true, uh, but I don't think it's a big deal uh, mm. because I think it's proven remarkably hard to get, say, developing countries to go along with stricter, you know, taxing, taxation mm-hmm. of carbon. And even if they did, that's not, you know, developing economies aren't that important to the global financial system. Mm. Um, Europe already has a pretty high price on carbon, and Sweden specifically, the price mm. of carbon for most businesses effectively is mm. already very high. Mm. Uh, so it, it, that, that tax creates a lot of, uh, industrial change, development, uh, mm. you know, transition, mm. as it should, doesn't really harm the financial economy. So the, the banks or the financial system, if, if you like, mm. is still there. You're just lending to a windmill or to a wind uh, power plant instead of to a coal power plant. And the bank's business is similar. Mm. So that thing I also think is relatively modest. Mm. The third type of risk is something you could call sentiment risk, which is that one day, say, the stock market says, we think coal is immoral, mm. and the stock price really tanks. This kind of risk is much harder to predict. I don't think mm. it's something that's systemic because we're talking about stock prices. But mm. if you're an investor, you might, you know, definitely want to think about it. Mm. So I think they're all there. They're not super important. Mm. 
Mm. I think the I want to flip it and go, you know, emphasize more what you asked in your the second part of your question, which is how can the financial system help the transition? Mm. I think that's the right question. So mm. I almost feel like the risks to the financial system are is the wrong question, almost. Mm. You know, the second question is so much more important, which is how mm. can we use the financial system as a tool to accelerate the transition? Mm. And I think it's, um, you know, it sounds easier as a way of convincing banks, insurance companies, pension plans, and mm. so on to say, oh, there's a risk. You have to avoid the risk. Mm. But it's not really the truth. The truth is we need a different set of investments to take place mm. for the sake of climate. Mm. We're not trying to save the banks. We're trying to save the planet. Mm, yeah. And I think it's better to be honest about that. Mm. And so that leads to slightly different policies, for example. Mm. I don't think financial regulators need to have to, a department devoted to, you know, the impact of drought mm. on or floods on the European economy. Mm. I mean, they could have someone who thinks about it, just like that people think about cyber risks, sure. Mm. You know, or an asteroid or whatever. I mean, these are all things to keep in mind. Mm. But the big question, not for central banks, but for society as a whole, is how do we use the financial system productively? How mm. can we engage it, uh, you know, as a way to reach... Uh, you know the transition to get to the transition faster because mm. to me as a former professional winter sports athlete i like the winters and i'm also a firm believer that we humans feel good having in the parts where we have four seasons have four seasons and i'm also half barbadian and i've seen literally the seawater rise swallow beaches mm -hmm. on the island And as you probably noticed, winters are a bit shorter here in Stockholm now. Um, I'm just thinking that in the context of cars, we need a Tesla for all the other EVs to start transitioning to electric vehicles and so forth. Um, do you think that my grandkids will be able to ski in the future? <laughs> I mean, yeah, sure, I, of course. There's no, even in the worst scenarios, mm. I don't think, you know, let's see your grandkids. Uh, so it's a long way I'm out. talking though. about the... It's a long <laughs> way out. <laughs> I was going to say, how old are your kids? <laughs> uh, okay, so let's assume we're talking about the end of the century, which is sort of where the IPCC uh, scenarios end. Mm. I think most of those scenarios, there's no question, there's plenty of places with snow. They'll just yeah. be different to some extent than that, right? So there are resorts... Mm. in the Alps that are mm. located at 1,200 meters altitude. You know, yeah. they will not be there, Yeah, right? And uh, some of the southern resorts in Sweden, you know, mm. say this, uh, the slopes in Stockholm, okay? Yeah. Those aren't going to work. Yeah. You're going to have to go further north or higher up. Mm. And so it's going to be possible. But mm. that said, I mean, obviously, the long-term threat to mm. the current... Um, It's called winter sports industry mm. is uh, large. Yeah, you know they have their lifts mm. at the wrong altitude, <laughs> yeah. all latitude. Yeah, you yeah. know for a warmer world for sure. Yeah, and that's happening even if we do the right thing with the transition and everything. So much of that is already kind of baked into what we have emitted already. So that's oh, hard that's to avoid. So I think, I mean, that some of the loss is already inevitable. Yeah, because I think uh, complacency is what I'm worried about, where you get or we get into a uh, stage of feeling comfortable, just like we, with the Industrial Revolution, and then you sort of don't push through onto the next revolution, which, as I see it now, is the electrification, rebuilding grids, which we have... I mean, this current crisis is a proof that we need to rethink a lot of infrastructure and, and so on or maybe yeah. focus more on it sustainable sure. development the, the the need to adjust how the system works is huge mm. i mean just just to emphasize how complicated this is mm. uh, there isn't enough battery material to change the whole car fleet of the world to electric mm. cars mm. right and so There's a benefit here to technological development that I think mm. is, you know, immense. Mm. If we're going to do this with our current technologies, it's going to be basically infeasible to get to where we need to be. So mm. the whole transition hinges on 
new product, new technologies, new knowledge, mm -hmm. and that's huge. And so uh, I'm an optimist in the sense mm -hmm. that I think there is right now a lot of movement. If you look at the price, for example, per unit of energy produced for solar cells, it's been plummeting and plummeting now year in and year out. It's mm -hmm. amazing. So I think that happens. That's going to be a massive force, mm -hmm. but it does take time. So, mm -hmm. you know, we shouldn't be complacent uh, like you worry about, but we also have to be patient. That, that process does take a, some time. Mm. And sometimes before the technology is there, uh, you know, doing the transition with the wrong technology is going to be costly and inefficient. Mm. And so I think the right place to focus is technology. Mm. You know, new businesses, new ways of doing business mm. and being smarter. And I think a lot of companies are working in that direction, and there's certainly good incentives in, in places like Europe and Sweden because mm. carbon is taxed. Mm. Nice. Okay, great. So I don't have to worry about my grandkids skiing. It's just that it'll be less ski resorts. It'll be more expensive. Yeah, fewer people will ski. I mean, we should worry. <laughs> but it's not going to be gone. That's my prediction. Oh. Okay. Um, <laughs> so, Bo, um, I have one last question. Um where do you stand in the puzzling question that the profession has never settled on, nor even addressed? The pronunciation of finance versus finance. Oh. Generally, both <laughs> are accepted. Right. Yeah, I think both, both are fine. Um, usually when there's two pronunciations of an English word, there's uh, some regional yeah. part to this. I think maybe there's a little bit of, in the U.S., I think, <coughs> maybe finance is more east coast yeah and the further west you go or to the midwest for sure there's more finance yeah um i think more people in new york and boston say finance that's my experience but uh, i don't think uh i don't think it matters it's a great topic either way <laughs> thank you very much bo for being on the podcast yeah thanks for having me Thank you, dear listeners, for tuning in to the episode 5 of Sound Economy. In the next episode, I will have a conversation with Lawrence Romani, professor at the Department of Management and Organization here at the Stockholm School of Economics. Until then, have a good week.